0: Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. You can take your seats. Let's take just a moment to pray together. Gracious God, thank you that you are not a God who has stayed silent. You're not a God who is hiding from us. And I know that some of us in this room, we feel that way. We feel like we're looking for you, looking for your presence in our lives, looking for some semblance that you see us and know us and you care about us, and we're struggling to find that. Uh, But God, you do see us, and you do know us, and you are not hiding from us, but you have come from heaven to earth in the form of your Son, to reveal to us who you are and what you're like. And I pray that now, Holy Spirit, you would come and give us a fresh encounter of that. That's what we need this morning, a fresh encounter with you, um, of your goodness, of your kindness, of your mercy, of your grace, of the hope that you alone offer to us. And so would you speak to us wherever we find ourselves this morning, Uh, speak to us in such a way that our lives would be Changed when we leave this place. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, how about how about a hand for Whitney on those announcements? Yeah. She's she's good. She's a little too good. I feel like she's coming coming for my job. Um, uh, uh, hey, one quick cool note is uh we've got 25 people who are away this weekend on our first ever res youth retreat which is something to really celebrate yep Wendy mentioned that our church is growing has been really it's really been really cool to see our our youth group grow and uh, uh this is something we want to invest in more and more in years to come okay so i don't think they're watching this morning or otherwise i would say hey to them but they're hanging out in tahoe um, having their own church service Uh, We are in a series on the fruit of the Spirit, and uh, if if that's a new language to you, uh, Galatians chapter 5, which is a book in the New Testament, says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the nine marks that God wants to cultivate in your life and in my life. And the reason that God wants to do this is because His ultimate aim in your life and in my life is to make us more and more like Jesus, to form His character more and more in us. And you see, this is really good news for us this morning because when you become a Christian, when you place your faith in Jesus, God does not leave you to yourself to simply try harder in the Christian life. God sends the Holy Spirit to live inside of us and to transform us into the likeness of Jesus by producing this fruit in our lives. We've been calling this series on the fruit of the Spirit The Beautiful Life. Uh, I want to give you just a thought experiment for just a moment. I want you to imagine that this week you go out and you find 10 people in your life who are not Christians. If you don't know 10 people in your life who are not Christians, you need to make some friends, okay? You're called to that. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, you are not called to just silo yourself off from the world. I want you to imagine that you went out and you found ten people, neighbors, coworkers, people in your social circles. And you told them that you were a Christian. What would their first thought be? Would their first thought be that your life is more full because of what you believe? Or would their first thought be that your life is less full because of what you believe? The average person in Oakland, the average person in Oakland, the moment that you tell them you are a Christian, they assume that you are bargaining down your life, that you are settling, that you are missing out, that your life is less full. Now, why is that the case? I mean, look at this description of the fruit of the Spirit. I just gave it to you. Love, joy, peace, patience. My voice just cracked. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Friends, that is a life that is brimming. It is a life, it is a life that is beautiful. And it is a life that is full. And so, why is why does the average person in Oakland think automatically that Christianity is such a downer? And what I want to suggest to us this morning is that the problem is not Jesus. The problem is us. We do not know how to tap into this beautiful life that God has for us. God says, I want your life to be overflowing with love, but it is overflowing with bitterness and resentment. God says, I want your life to be spilling over with peace, and yet we are riddled with worry and anxiety. I know that story well. God says, I want your life to be filled with kindness and goodness, but it is filled with self-centeredness and self-protection. And you see, we fall so short of the life that God wants for us, but here is the good news this morning. God is patient. God loves you more than you could ever love you. And God wants us to experience the beautiful life more than we even want it for our own selves. And he is committed to producing the fruit of the Spirit in our lives so that we might know the fullness of life in him and so that we might be his witnesses in the world. Amen? Amen. 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 So this morning we are looking at joy, the fruit of joy, which is something that our city desperately needs and it is something that every single person in this room desperately needs. And the first thing that this passage teaches us is this. Joy is possible. Do you believe that? I hear some yeses, and I hear some I knows it, and that is fantastic. But do you believe that joy is possible? See, this is a very important question. And the reason that I ask this is because we are in a cultural moment where people are very skeptical that joy is possible. Uh, Do you know, for example, look at the world of art. Uh, it's, It's been said that we are actually living in the first era of history where it is widely believed that a happy ending is a mark of inferior art. Happy endings is bad art. And bad endings, sad endings, Dark endings is good art. I was watching a movie just a couple weeks ago. I'm not going to tell you which one it is because there's a spoiler and you'd all be mad at me. Uh, but, but, but here's the spoiler. I'm not going to tell you the movie. I'm going to tell you the spoiler, not the movie. Hey, if you deduce this, it's, that's your own business, okay? All right. Here's the spoiler. Everybody dies in the movie. Literally. Everyone dies. This movie was nominated for Best Picture and it won a bunch of awards. See, we are we are skeptical that joy is possible, and let me tell you, this is even more true on this side of COVID. Even more true on this side of COVID. Did you know that that mental health professionals, psychologists, they they have a new category of mental health illness? A whole new category. And the word for it. Is languishing. Languishing. This this is this is a coin that was phrased by a sociologist named Corey Keyes who noticed, and what struck him was that many people who aren't depressed also are not thriving in life. And see so what psychologists say is that all of us, we live our lives on a continuum. All of us. This is this is your life and my life, we are somewhere on this continuum. And on one side, you have depression. And on the other side, you have flourishing. Let me ask you a question this morning. Where are you on that spectrum right there? Where are you this morning? Some of us would say we are depressed. Maybe a very small handful of us would say we are flourishing. Most of us would say we're somewhere in the middle. You know what the middle is called? Boom. I love this slide stuff. We're going to do this every week. Boom. (laughs) Boom. You know, it's like magic. All right. Languishing. Psychologists say this is where most people in the world are living right now. We're languishing. We are stuck. We're stuck in the middle. It's hard to get out of the middle. It's hard to get joy. We wonder if it is possible. And I want you to notice the first thing that Paul says in verse four in this passage. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Paul repeats the word. Rejoice. He says it twice. Charles Spurgeon preached an entire sermon on this one verse. And he said the reason that Paul said it twice is because joy is hard, joy is important, and joy is possible. Joy is possible. And get this, not only is it possible, but God actually commands it. That word rejoice, that's a command. To be joyful. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 16 says this, be joyful always, listen to this, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. What is God's will for your life? Ever ask that question? 1 Thessalonians 5 says, God's will for your life is joy. This is how committed God is to joy in your life. I want to tell you that you see this throughout the Bible, from the beginning, first page, to the very last page. God is so committed to your joy. On the very first page of the Bible, the very first thing that God does is he takes humanity and he puts them in this garden where there is beauty and food and love and goodness, and you know what? One of the first things that God does is He tells them to enjoy it. He says to them that the tr- it says that God created trees that were pleasing to the eye, and good for food. Joy was one of the first tasks that God gave to humanity. Joy was one of the first things that God does in the Bible. You remember what God does on the seventh day of creation? It says that he rested. Why did God rest? Was he sleepy? Just kind of worn out, you know, creator of heaven and earth? Man, that was, I took it out of me, those six days. Let me uh, lay down and close my eyes for a minute. Why did God rest? God rested from his work because he wanted to enjoy his work. He wanted to enjoy what he made. Listen to this. In the Old Testament... God commanded Israel to celebrate three feasts, three festivals. It, this is in Deuteronomy chapter 16, which is one of those parts of the Bible where if you start reading the Bible through in a year, you, you start to quit around Deuteronomy chapter 16. You think, what, what is interesting in here? A lot is interesting in there. And one of this, those things is this. God commanded Israel to celebrate three festivals. You can read about them in Deuteronomy 16. They were the feast of... Uh, The feast of weeks, the feast of tabernacles, and the feast of the unleavened bread, which is Passover. God commanded them in all of these feasts, he commanded them not only not to work, but he commanded them to rejoice, to be joyful. Keep moving through the Bible. You come to the Psalms. It's all over. There's too many verses to quote. I'll give you one. Psalm 16, 11, You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Then we come to the New Testament. Jesus shows up. Do you remember the first miracle that Jesus ever performed? He did a lot of miracles in the Gospels. The very first miracle that he ever performed was not raising the dead, It was not giving sight to those who are blind. It was not making the deaf hear. The very first miracle that Jesus ever performs in the Gospels is he shows up to a wedding party, and they have run out of wine, and he makes more. He keeps the joy going. And then he says to his disciples in John 15, he says, I've told you all these things so that my joy may be in you and so that your joy may be complete. Some of you, joy is the last thing you associate with Christianity. But friends, when you open the pages of Scripture, God is so committed to your joy. C.S. Lewis says, joy is the serious business of heaven. It is impossible to overstate the degree to which God is committed to your joy. Which brings us to the next point, which is what is joy? And I want to talk here about the uniqueness of Christian joy. See, when the Bible talks about joy, it is talking about something very different than happiness. And I think we get a very good definition of it, of joy here in this text. When we jump down to verse 10, look at verse 10. Paul says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. That's interesting. In verse four, Paul commands us to have joy. And then in verse 10, Paul says, I have joy. He says, he rejo- he's rejoicing. Why is he rejoicing? Well, one reason... That Paul is rejoicing, as he says, because the Philippians, they renewed their concern for him. He's talking about how they sent him money for his missionary journeys, and they cared for him while he was in in prison. But that's not all that he's talking about, because look at, keep reading, all right? The very next verse, look at this. He says, I'm not saying this because I am in need. For I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. That right there is one of the most misunderstood verses in the entire Bible. Friends, that verse is not talking about It's not meant for people to win more Super Bowls, okay? Or to run faster or or for Steph to make more three-pointers, okay? Paul is not talking about sports when he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He's talking about the ability to be content. And what he says is, he says, no matter what circumstances I am in, I have learned to be content. That is an amazing thing for Paul to say. Because in this moment, Paul's circumstances are not very good. On a scale of 1 to 10, they're about a zero. Paul is writing from prison. He is in a Roman prison cell at this moment. He does not know whether or not he will ever get out. There's a chance he may die in this prison cell. He is in the worst of circumstances. And yet he says he is rejoicing. And he has joy. And see, this is where happiness and joy diverge. Happiness, friends, happiness is finding contentment in your circumstances. Happiness is entirely dependent on what happens to you. In fact, the word happiness and the word happens come from the same root word, which means luck or lot, And let me tell you, you do not have to live very long to figure this out. When your happiness is based on your circumstances, it becomes very fragile and fleeting. It is here one moment and it is gone the next. It will always come and go based on how your circumstances are going. Christian joy is entirely different. Joy, according to Paul, means finding your contentment not in your circumstances, But joy is finding contentment in God. And Paul is very clear about this in this passage. He says in verse 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord. And then he says again in verse 10, he says that he rejoices in the Lord. Happiness is not rooted in your circumstances. Uh, Happiness is rooted in your circumstances. Joy is rooted in the Lord. So your circumstances can always change, and they will always change, but God never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Which means that while happiness is something that will come and go, and you can only experience when life is going well, joy is something that you can experience no matter how life is going. It reminds me of, this a very famous story from the 1956 Montgomery bus boycotts. In Montgomery, Alabama, uh, these these boycotts started when Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat. And for over an entire year, the black community refused to ride these bus buses as a protest. These, these these the whole thing was led by Dr. King, and one of those protesters was a woman named Mother Pollard, and she was 72 years old. For that entire year, she walked everywhere she went. She refused to get on the bus, and one day, Dr. King asked her how she was doing, and she said, my feet are tired, but my soul is at rest. My feet are tired, but my soul is at rest. On the outside, everything was exhausting. Everything was falling apart. Everything was hard, but inside, there was rest, and there was joy. And I love the way that Walter Wangren puts this in his book, Reliving the Passion. He says, the difference between shallow happiness and a deep, sustaining joy is sorrow. Happiness lives where sorrow is not. And when sorrow arrives, happiness dies. It can't stand pain. Joy on the other hand rises from sorrow and therefore can withstand all grief. Joy by the grace of God is the transfiguration of suffering into endurance and of endurance into character and of character into hope and the hope that has become our joy does not as happiness must for those who depend on it does not disappoint us. What if you could have that kind of joy? What if you could have a joy that could withstand any trial, any heartache, any setback, any suffering, any sadness, any circumstances? What if there was this defiant joy that you could have in your life that no matter what was going on outside of you, it could withstand the fiercest storms that life will bring your way. Wouldn't you want that? Of course you want that. Of course you want that. We all want that. And here is the good news. Here is the good news for you this morning and for me. God wants to give it to you. God wants to give it to you. And he wants to give it to you as he works in you through the power of his spirit and as we work to open up our lives more to him and to the joy that he wants to bring into our life. See, I said this at the very very first sermon in this series, that the fruit of the Spirit comes into our lives as God works and as we work. God is the one doing it, but we are not passive. And I love that Paul says he's learned the secret to contentment. I love that he calls it a secret. What is a secret? A secret is something that everybody wants to know, but only a few people do. See, we all want this joy, but very few of us have it. And I love that Paul says he's learned the secret of contentment. There is such hope for us in that word learn. Paul is not saying he has mastered contentment. That is not the point. Paul is saying joy is something you can grow in. You don't have it, you want it, You can learn it. You can grow in it. You can take active steps to build it into your life. And you say, well, how? I'm so glad you asked. That brings us to the very last point. We've talked about how joy is possible and how Christian joy is unique. Let's talk about some very practical steps you and I can take in our life to cultivate the fruit of joy in our life. I'm going to give you four of them, and here's the first. The first is this saturate yourself in God's Word. Friends, plant your life in the soil of Scripture. Look at this in verse 8. Paul says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Now, I want to tell you, this is a verse... I don't think I've really understood what this verse has meant for my entire Christian life. I mean, it sounds very poetic. It's very beautiful. It's very lofty. It's kind of very inspiring. But what is Paul talking about? I want you to notice that Paul talks, he mentions all of this. He writes these words in the middle of this whole discussion on joy. You see, what Paul, I think, is doing is he is making a link between Scripture and joy he says think about whatever is true put your mind on that in John 17 when Jesus is praying to the father he says father sanctify them by truth by the truth your word is truth scripture tells us what is true about God it tells us what is true about us it tells us how loved we are by him and in him Paul says think about whatever is lovely Friends, you know what scripture is meant to do? It is meant to put you in touch with the source and the fountain of all beauty in the universe. The most lovely being that exists, which is God himself. He says, think about what is praiseworthy. See, the Bible is not just meant to be read, it is meant to warm our hearts into praising and worshiping God. There is a link between scripture And joy. And here is the link. The link is this a Christian who neglects spending time with God in His Word will be a joyless Christian. There will be joy that is missing in your life. I love the way that C.S. Lewis puts this. He says, Good things as well as bad are caught by a kind of infection. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to get wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, if you want power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They're not a sort of prize, which God could, if he chose, choose, just hand out to anyone. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. Saturate yourself in God's word. Here's the second thing this text tells us. Pray with thanksgiving. Pray with thanksgiving. Look at verse 6. Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to god paul says that we are to pray with thanksgiving but this is not how we tend to pray typically this is how we pray we take our request to god and then we wait a little bit and if and when god answers those requests then we thank him but paul is actually saying we are to give thanks while we are making the requests to god before we even have an answer and you see, learning how to pray this way is so important in order to grow in joy. Martin Luther, there's this very famous story of Martin Luther, who uh, he wrote a letter to one of his friends who was struggling with anxiety and worry. And his name was, was Philip. He was struggling with anxiety and worry, and in his letter, Martin Luther said this to Philip He said, Let Philip cease to rule the world. So much of our worry, so much of our anxiety comes because we think we know how to rule the world better than God does. We think we know how to rule our own lives better than God does, and we are afraid that God will not get it right. And so Paul is talking about, this is so practical, he is talking about a kind of prayer where you go to God and you are saying, I am not in charge of the world. And that is a good thing because I do not see the whole picture. I don't always know how my life should go, but God you do, you do, you see the whole picture and there's nothing that you will allow to come into my life unless it is for my good and so therefore you can thank him in advance for what he is going to do. I wanna be really clear, here. this does not mean, some of you are in really hard circumstances right now, really sad circumstances, painful circumstances, I am not saying that you have to be thankful. And Paul is not saying that you have to be thankful for difficult circumstances. He is saying that you can thank God even in the midst of those circumstances. Because you know that God wastes nothing. He wastes nothing in your life. Not even the hard thing. Here's the third thing. How do you cultivate joy in your life? Fight the lie of more. Fight the lie of more. Paul says that he's learned the secret of contentment. He's learned how to have joy. You know what most of us think the secret to contentment and joy is? More. More. More money. More status. More beauty. More pleasure. More square footage in our tiny urban dwellings. We think, if only I could have more, I would be happy. And I am not talking about wanting more of legitimate things, okay? This is not talking about people who are below the poverty line, who want or need more to survive. There's a big difference between wanting more for, for survival and wanting more as an idol, and looking to things to fulfill you in ways that only God can. Let me give you just two very simple questions to ask yourself to help you fight the lie of more. The first is a question about complaining. What are the areas of my life where I complain that I don't have enough? Complaining, the things that you complain about always reveal the areas of your life where we believe the lie that we need more. And the second one is this, is comparison comparison? whose life am I comparing mine to? So we are always comparing ourselves to other people, and we're always comparing ourselves to people that we think have it better than we do. And Theodore Roosevelt said, comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison will rob you of your joy. And comparison always reveals the areas where we believe the lie of more, fight the lie of more. Here's the last thing. Remember what lasts forever. Um, I have been navigating death all week this week, both on a, on a, a personal and a pastoral level. Um, I've been at the hospital basically every day this week with someone in our church who is very, very sick. Um, And I did, let me tell you, somebody asked me yesterday how I'm doing, and I said, you know, I did college ministry for 11 years, and college students tend to not die. And so I'm walking kind of through something I've never really walked through as a pastor before. And then many of you, you, you saw this, that Tim Keller, the pastor and author in New York City Uh, died on Friday of this week. Um, I know many of you have been impacted by him. I will tell you that no one has impacted me or shaped me more as a Christian and in my understanding of the gospel and as a pastor. And so I've been been navigating death all week and at one point I said to my wife this week, I said, you know, this is a really weird week to have to write a sermon on joy. It's a really weird week. And it just kind of hit me really not until yesterday, that there is no better topic for us this morning. Because what you and I need more than anything else is a joy that not even death can take from us. Friends, everything in this life will be taken away from us. No person will always be there. No family will always be there. No talent will always be there. Your looks will not always be there. I'm learning this. You know, I'm, I'm 45 now, so I'm starting on the down, downhill side. It's not getting any prettier, OK? Your looks will not always be there. I, mean, I don't think they actually ever, ever were there for me, but, you know, <laughs> we all start from somewhere. Um, Being young and healthy and having all of this life in front of you will not always be there. See, whatever it is that you sink your joy into, whether it is a circumstance or a person, it is like putting it into quicksand. Nothing lasts forever. You know what else doesn't last forever? Whatever you're facing right now. Whatever circumstance you are in right now, that hard marriage that you're in, it will not last forever. That loneliness that you feel in your singleness, it will not last forever. Working multiple jobs just to try and pay the bills, that will not last forever. Injustice in our city will not last forever. Cancer will not last forever. Chronic pain will not last forever. Depression will not last forever. Funerals will not last forever. None of these things last forever. You know what lasts forever? The steadfast love of God. Everything else will be taken from us. But the love of God never will. And that is a love that is stronger than anything you could ever do or ever have done. It is stronger than any sin you could ever commit. And it is stronger than death and the grave itself. And therefore, it is the only thing strong enough to give us a joy that can never be taken away from us. Not even death can take it from you. You know what death can do? It can do one thing if you're a Christian, it can only usher you more deeply into the fullness of joy in the presence of God, in a world of joy that we will live in forever. This is why Tim Keller, on Friday morning, his last words to his son were this. He said, there is no downside for me in leaving, not even the slightest. You have to remember what's forever. And you know what makes all of this possible, actually, is this table. Uh, we've been talking a lot about our joy this morning, but this table tells us something about Jesus' joy, actually. It, this table points us to the cross, and in Hebrews chapter 12, it says that it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. Just think about that for just a moment. It was for the joy set before him that Jesus went to the cross. What was the joy before him? What was the joy that he did not have on that side of the cross that he could only have if he went through the cross? It it was not the love of the Father. He already had that. You know what it was? It was us. We are his joy. Have you ever considered that? Have you ever considered that the God of the universe has located his joy in you? Let me tell you, you can search far and wide, but let me save you some time. No other religion says this. No other God is like this. Jesus said, it does not matter what I have to lose." It doesn't matter what circumstances I have to go through. It doesn't matter how bad it gets. It doesn't matter what loss I face. It doesn't matter if I even have to lose my own life, which he did. Jesus said, as long as I have you, I have joy. That is amazing. As long as I have you, I'll be content. We were the secret to his contentment. And to the degree that you see that you were the secret to his contentment, he will become the secret to yours. To the degree that you see he located his joy in you, you will locate your joy in him. Joy is possible, friends. It is available to you this morning. No matter what is going on outside of you, you can have it because you can have him. And the invitation of this table is to receive him to receive him, whether it is the very first time or the thousandth time, receive him and know his joy. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and after he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it saying, this cup represents the new covenant which is shed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we look to you this morning as the God of all joy. And we we come to this table as people who have been trying to find that joy in anything and everything else. If we know ourselves at all, we have been looking and searching and locating it in all sorts of things. And yet here you stand this morning, God, inviting us once again to this table to know you, to know your joy, to find ourselves filled in you and by you and through you, all because of what Christ has done for us. Fill us as we come this morning, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.